Matthew chapter 26. As we continue our study of the, of the book of Matthew, really on the eve of the crucifixion now, Matthew 26, we'll be starting in verse 17 here in just a minute. Saw a survey this week. They surveyed 2,000 adults uh, from the UK. These are Brits, and you'll tell by the results of the survey. These are not Americans. Uh, maybe some overlap, but 2,000 people surveyed asked, what do you think are the most important things in life? What are the most things that are most necessary in life? You know, even as I say that, I wonder what you're, you're thinking. How, how would you respond? What's most necessary in life? Well, there are uh, a number of responses. I, I really saw there was four different categories. The first category dealt with technology because the first response was an internet connection. Thinking, okay, these, yeah, that's, that, that's pretty important. What would you do? How much extra time would you then have for life if you didn't have an internet connection was my thought. Number two, television. Number 19, an iPhone. It has to be an iPhone, not any phone, just, you know, not a smartphone, but an iPhone came up. Some responses dealt more with uh, relationships. You know, number three was a cuddle. Number four, a trustworthy best friend. Number eight, an I love you every now and then. Number nine was a solid marriage. Number uh, 14, a night in on the sofa, and 16, a good cry every now and then. Others were very more, you know, much more practical. What's necessary for life? Uh, response number five, a daily shower. Uh, number six, central heating. Uh, number 10, a car. Number 11, glasses. Others were thinking more of what's necessary in life. Uh, what, what brings you enjoyment? Um, and so you have Number seven, a cup of tea. You can see how these aren't Americans. I don't think that would have come up. Um, sweet tea, maybe, uh, but we don't call it a cup of tea. It comes in a mason jar. <laughs> number 12, coffee. That's probably a number one or two for Americans, probably. Uh, 13, chocolate. A glass of wine, number 15, a full English breakfast. I was thinking about that. I'm not even quite sure what that is. Um, Number 18, a foreign holiday once a year. Number 20, a pint of something or other, probably a beverage. Of, you can just imagine in England what that might be. As I was, as I was, as I was reflecting on these things, I, I began to think, what are, what are things that are necessary for life? What are those things that we might say are the, the bare necessities of life? <clears throat> what are things that are necessary for life, for our lives? You know, this, 
this morning in the text we're going to be looking at, as I was studying and I saw that there really there, there are three things that happened in the life of Jesus that were necessary for him to come and to accomplish his mission. Three things that this text reveals to us about what it was necessary for Jesus to do, even as he lets us know that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let's pray together as we look at this text. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your son, through his life and through his ministry, recorded for us through your apostles and prophets. And Lord, now speak to us, reveal to us, and help us to see, Lord, that you are indeed great, that you are the creator of heaven and earth, and that you are sovereign over all things, even the affairs of men. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would teach us through this text that your word would accomplish its purpose. And, Father, it is our prayer that you would draw us closer to the Savior, that we would grow in our love and appreciation of what he has given up for us and what he has gained for us. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things in the life of Jesus that were necessary for him to do in, this, in these texts this morning. Number one, it was necessary for Jesus, first of all, to celebrate the Passover. It was nece- necessary for him to celebrate the Passover. We find this in the first uh, three verses, starting in verse 17. Again, we read, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed, directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So first of all, it starts off with this, this Passover celebration. And exactly what is that? What was the Passover celebration? Well, notice how it's linked here to the, it was the first day of the unleavened bread. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread was a week-long celebration to remember God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt and deliver them to the Promised Land. And the first day of that week-long feast was the Passover, was the Passover celebration. And so, for example, we read in Exodus where the people of Israel are, are, are taught what to do and how to celebrate this. It says, the first day, this day, uh, you shall, shall be for you a memorial. You shall remember the deeds of the Lord, what he has done. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. It goes on to say, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts, I brought the people out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And you'll remember that the people there, they they left very quickly. Uh, They didn't have time for their bread to rise. And so we read in Deuteronomy why it's called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. You shall eat no leavened bread with it when you celebrate this this, this Passover, this feast. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life 
Here it is again. You may remember. This is a memorial for you to remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. And so during the Passover feast, they would take a lamb, it would take it to the temple, it would be sacrificed, it would be roasted with bitter herbs. The head of the household during the Passover feast would then begin the meal with thanksgiving and a preliminary course of greens and and bitter herbs, which then the head of the house would uh, explain the meaning of the, the seven elements of the Passover. And the, for example, the bitter herbs represented the, their time of slavery, um, that, that time of bitterness and that difficult time. And so they would explain the, the unleavened bread and especially the, the sacrificial lamb that was slaughtered and was their provision for the angel of death to, to pass over them. And so this whole event was, of the Passover was a memorial for them to, to remember the Lord's faithfulness and deliverance from Egypt into the promised land. And there were four cups of wine that they would what we introduced throughout the Passover. And I think Daniel would be, would be happy about this. They would sing throughout the meal and even conclude the meal with a hymn. But notice here that the, the disciples just assume that Jesus will celebrate the Passover. They just assume it. They don't ask if. They just say, where are we going to do this? Jesus celebrates the Passover feast as a, as a, as a Jew. He, remember when he was going to be baptized by John? And John's like, no, no, no. And Jesus says, I came to fulfill all righteousness. And so even here, um, Jesus came and is obedient to what is found in the Old Testament. He obeyed the law, every bit of it. You know, I think sometimes we, we view Jesus as a, sometimes as, as a radical lawbreaker. He came in with, you know, the temple with whips and overturned things, and he, he was, a, he, he was uh, always calling the Pharisees names, you brood of vipers and hypocrites, and, you know, your children of the devil, and he, he called them whitewashed tombs. And so sometimes we think of Jesus as being this just radical person, but yet he kept the law perfectly. And he became a substitute for us because of his perfect life. Even as Peter says, 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed. How were you ransomed? Again, this, this, this reminds us of, of, of the Exodus. You, how were you ransomed? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He lived a perfect life. As an obedient and faithful Jew, he submitted to God's law and kept, kept it perfectly. But there's also a greater reason why Jesus kept the Passover feast that's hinted at. We'll get to it later, but it's already hinted at in this text. In verse 18, he says, tell this person to whose house we're going to go, to prepare the feast, tell him, my time is at hand. It's not just time to, to celebrate the, the Passover, but my time is drawing near of my impending death and, and crucifixion and what I came to fulfill. And so the first thing we see is it was necessary for Jesus to celebrate this Passover, but secondly, it was necessary for Jesus to be betrayed by Judas during the Passover. We see this in the next section, verses 20 through 25. 
It says, when it was evening. So now, when it's evening, that's Thursday night, but that's when the Passover would begin, the Jewish day when the sun went down. Now it's Friday. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who, was, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Notice several things about this, about this betrayal. First of all, there's the prediction of it. The predict, prediction of the betrayal. Notice how Jesus emphatically states this. He says, first of all, truly I say to you, this is, this is going to happen. Then, then twice he predicts that one of you will betray me. You will betray me. But not only was it predicted, you see the necessity of the betrayal. It was necessary, apparently. Jesus says in verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. It was necessary for this to happen because it was written in the scriptures. And Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures. You might ask, okay, where does it say that? And the answer is there's not a verse that says, if you're trying to look for it, uh, on the Passover, the Messiah will be betrayed by one of his disciples with a kiss. Uh, it doesn't say that in the Old Testament. Um, but there is this general theme that the Messiah, the suffering servant, will be, will be betrayed. He will be persecuted. He will be delivered over. You see this in a couple of places, especially Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. For example, Isaiah 53, this, this suffering servant, it says that he was despised and rejected by men. It says that he was oppressed and afflicted. He was delivered as a lamb led to the slaughter. And so Jesus says it was necessary for this to happen to fulfill what was written. And so that brings us to the cause of the, of the betrayal, the cause. You see, in one sense, this was, this was God's will. This was God's plan, was it not? It was written. Who wrote it? God did through his, through his prophets. It was God's plan. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan for Jesus to come to give his life and to die. And Jesus said, the Son of Man goes. That's the Son of Man will be killed as it is written of him. And yet, Judas was responsible for his sin. Verse 24, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He, he will receive punishment. He, it would be, have been better for that man if he had not been born. He's responsible. He is accountable. He is culpable. He freely chooses to do this, and yet it was God's plan. I don't know about you, but that seems to, a bit of a mystery to me. Now, we have to be careful because the Bible affirms both of these truths, and you do not want to affirm one over the other. God is sovereign. 
God does, Ephesians 1 tells us that God does all things according to the counsel of his will. I hope you believe that. God is sovereign. If he's not, we don't have much hope that his purposes will, 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 will happen. If man is in control and God leaves it up to man and doesn't touch the, in the affairs of man, we don't have much hope. God is sovereign. And yet, somehow, mysteriously, we are responsible for our actions. Judas, notice Jesus didn't say if. I didn't see an if in there, did you? There's a will. It will happen. It will happen. And yet, Judas is accountable. Both of these are true. God is sovereign, and he works all things out according to the counsel of his will, and man is responsible. I think in Scripture, we need to affirm both of these, and it's sort of like two guardrails that keep us on the straight and narrow path. God is sovereign guardrail over here, and a man is responsible guardrail over here. Because if we affirm God's sovereignty and say, well, man must not be responsible, then we go into the ditch of fatalism. Well, you know, what, what can you do? And if we affirm man's responsibility and neglect God's sovereignty, then guess who's ruling the universe? It's up to man. Well, it's like, well, God, you said that, but I sure hope he does that. Somehow these two truths go together. I can't explain it all. Uh, you, probably you can't either, but we need to affirm them. You know, it's sort of like uh, holding a rope that's connected by, with a pulley on top. And, and as long as you hold on both of them, you're okay. But if you grab one, uh, let go of the other, you fall down. You, you, you must affirm both. And so it's like two pillars. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. They're, they're both taught in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Acts uh, 2.23, we read, this is Peter's Pentecost sermon. He says, this Jesus delivered up, listen, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Apparently it was God's plan, right? I'm give you more scripture. There's a lot more I can give you. We don't have time. But he says then to the, to the people listening, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was God's plan and you did it. And so these two truths, it, it's, it's like they're two pillars that go up and up and you're wondering how they're related. And they keep, they keep going up. But in the clouds, through the clouds, in heaven, in God's perfect understanding, these two pillars are actually an arch. They come together. And we can't always explain it, but you know what I like to do? I like to affirm what the Bible affirms. And so if the Bible teaches both, I like to affirm that. They're not contradictory. It's not like God is sovereign, God is not sovereign. That's a contradictory statement. But to say God is sovereign, man is responsible, are not contradictory. We just may, maybe can't explain it fully. I like what uh, D.A. Carson, well-known uh, scholar, says. He says, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both involved in Judas's treason. The one affecting salvation and bringing redemptive history to its fulfillment, the other answering the, prom answering the promptings of an evil heart. Another wrote, uh, what happens according to the declared will of God is nonetheless also a free and responsible human act. Neither truth invalidates the other. Both are true, and so we affirm both, even as we see it displayed in this text. And now, notice the effect of Jesus' statement about this prediction about betrayal to the disciples. It says in verse 22, they were, they were very sorrowful. This was no small accusation that would, have, would take place. And so, uh, it's, the text says that one after another, each one of them denied it. 
And the, resp- the response is, is it I, Lord? And if you read it in the original, it expects a negative answer. In other words, it could be translated, and it may be translated this way in your version, surely it's not I, Lord. You see, it expects a negative answer. Surely it is not I, Lord. And this is really, if you think about it, this is really an appropriate response here. Notice the disciples don't start pointing fingers. I wonder if it's this person, you know, you know oh, yeah, I was suspicious about Judas, always carrying the money box. No, each one of them says, is it I, Lord? And even as we now celebrate the Lord's Supper, we will here in a few minutes, isn't that appropriate to, 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 to look inward and say, what about, what about my heart? Where do I stand? Even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let a pers- person examine himself, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then notice the consequence of the betrayal here. It's very, very powerful. Verse 24, he says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. When you read woe in the Bible, that's the time to just stop and say, what's going on here? Because woe in the Bible is usually not a good thing. It's actually not usually. You can take that out. It's not a good thing. It's the, res- it's the result of God's, God's justice and holiness and wrath. It's not how we use the term today. My, my youngest son, Cameron, you might know him. He's, except for your kids, he'd be the, the cutest kid at church. Um, but he'll think, when things aren't going his way, he'll sometimes say, whoa, 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 hold on, calm down. You know, he's telling his parents to calm down, hold on. Um, you know, we say, whoa, 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 you know, wait, wait a minute. That, when you read whoa in the Bible, that is not how we're using it. Here's how we're using it in Matthew, 20, or Matthew 11, 21. Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in wicked, evil Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. They would have repented. Woe to you. So Jesus here declares us, woe to that man. It would have been better for him not to have been born. We're not talking about simply after death, annihilation. This is... This is an eternal punishment. It would, it would have been better not to have been born. And then notice that G- Judas' response is different than the other disciples. The other disciples call Jesus, they say, is it I, Lord? And notice that Judas, what does he say? Is it I, Rabbi? Interestingly, when you read the Gospels, you see that those on the outside call Jesus Rabbi, and those on the inside Call him Lord. So that when, a few hours later, when Judas will betray Jesus, he approaches him and says, Rabbi, and then betrays him with a kiss. You see, Judas had already agreed at this point to betray Jesus. And Satan had already entered his heart. But the beauty of the story is, is that God works these things for his good. What Judas meant for evil, God is going to work for the greatest good. And then finally, we see it was necessary for Jesus to fulfill and to redefine the Passover. I don't know if that's how you view the Lord's Supper. It's the Passover fulfilled and redefined. Jesus, at this Passover celebration, we'll see that's what he does. And so the text, verse 26, he says, it says, Now as they were eating, 
Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, now he's reinterpreting, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." Instead of interpreting the elements as related to the first Passover and the Exodus with Moses, Jesus gives them new meaning. He reinterprets them and he says, I am the one who these things pointed to. These things are fulfilled in me. Because the, the lamb, a lamb can never, can, can never take away sins. The Hebrews, writer of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. They pointed to a greater reality. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ is our Passover lamb. They pointed to him. He has been sacrificed. John the Baptist sees Jesus come and he says, Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus reinterprets these elements and he says, this bread, this bread is my body. Uh, Paul records it as, as the, Jesus saying, this is, this is my body which is for you, which is, which is broken for you. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's foreshadowing his upcoming death. My body will be broken on the cross for you. Again, Carson writes, as the bread has just been broken, so Jesus' body will be broken. And just as the people of Israel associated their deliverance from Egypt with the eating of the Passover meal, so also Messiah's people are to associate Jesus' redemptive death with eating this, this bread. And so he's redefining these elements. He says, now... This is something greater. This is my body, which is broken for you. Now, there is a lot of debate, I don't have time to go into it, about the meaning of this is my body. In the history of church and interpretation, that has caused a lot of ink to be spilled. Uh, for example, the Roman Catholic understanding, when Jesus says, this is my body, they interpret that very literally. Not as a metaphor, but as very little. This is my body, so the bread for them actually becomes the body of Jesus, and the wine becomes his blood, even though it still looks like bread and wine. That's called uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation, okay? Uh, the Reformers held a, held a different view, and their, theirs was um, not quite the view we hold, but they said that, uh, no, it, it's not quite that, but somehow when we partake of the communion, the Lord's Supper, Christ's real presence is there, and our souls are lifted up to heaven, and we have a, an actual fellowship communion with Jesus. And so these are known as kind of the, the, what's called the sacramental views. These are sacraments. They, they give us grace by the fact that they're, they're different, they're special, and they convey grace. But our understanding is, is different. It, it, we, we hold to the, the symbolic view that these are... These are rem just as the people of Israel were to remember the exodus, remember what God had done in delivering them, 
So now we remember through these elements what God has done in his son. I like what uh, Spurgeon says about the bread, and the bread becoming Jesus' body. And he says, Christ could not have meant that the bread was his body, for his body was reclining at the table. He says, but he intended that the broken bread to represent his body, which was about to be broken on the cross. You see, he's representing it. Just as, they, just as the Passover celebration had these symbols, so Jesus reinterprets these symbols in light of his own mission and purpose. And so then he takes the cup and he says, this wine, this, this cup, this represents my blood. He says, it's the, this is my blood of the covenant. And what we know about blood is the Bible tells us that the life is in the blood. If you don't have blood, you don't have life. And so we read in Leviticus 17, 11, the life is in the blood, or of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And notice what Jesus says. He says, this, this blood of the covenant is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's, it's poured out. That is, again, that's sacrificial language. Just, just as the, the lamb was slaughtered and its blood would be poured out, its life would be drained from it. Jesus is saying, my life will be given. This is saying, I'm going to die this death for you. And so this, this, this relates to, to Christ's work on the cross for us, him taking our place, even as we read in Isaiah 53, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. By his knowledge shall the righteous... One, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. And so Jesus says, this, this represents my blood. This is the, this is the sign of the new covenant, uh, in, in the Old Testament, when, they, when, when the covenant was made, blood was used. You read in Exodus 24, 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, notice these words, the blood of the covenant. The same words that Jesus used. And the Lord, that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant. You see, the Bible anticipated a new covenant that God would make. Back in Jeremiah, for example, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with you. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. They will, I will be their God. They will be my people. I'll forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sins no more. And so when Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, when he says, This cup that is poured out for you, he specifically says it's the new covenant. You see, when a covenant was made, Blood was spilt. And here Jesus is saying, I'm, I am making a new covenant with you. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful picture of the gospel, isn't it? I, I, I love celebrating the Lord's Supper because you can, have, 
you, if you're celebrating the Lord's Supper that Sunday, it's almost like, you know what, you can have a, if the sermon's no good, at least the gospel will be proclaimed. And so some call it the, the nonverbal proclamation of the gospel. It's a nonverbal proclamation. It reminds us of the essentials of the faith. It reminds us of our need of a Savior and that Christ died for us on the cross. I like what Dale Bruner says. He says, the Lord's Supper is the most Christocentric or Christ-centered of all the church's rites by its nature. He says it's the physical extension of the spiritual proclamation of God's one way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Celebrating the Lord's Supper reminds us of who our Savior is, what He has done for us. And so, as we, as we think about that, I want to just mention four directions that the Lord's Supper points us to. Four, four different directions. First, it points us inward, inward to the soul-searching repentance that we need. Even as we contemplate that song before I came up about us being a lot like Judas and, and Peter. Um, remember the disciples, their response, is it I, Lord? And as Paul said, let a person examine himself. We come to the table, it's good to first of all look inward. Which also reminds us that the celebration is restricted to believers. Jesus gave it to his disciples. Again, Bruner writes, the supper is for disciples, and only for disciples. This is not a meal for general consumption, for all and any who come to church, independent of the recipient's faith in Jesus. If one cannot honestly identify oneself as a disciple of Jesus, he or she should not take the supper. So first of all, it points us inward to see if we have unconfessed sin, that we need to speak to somebody, there's something on our heart. The first response is, is it I, Lord? But then it also points backwards to what Jesus has done for us on the cross at Calvary. Even as he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This is, this is my blood, my life will be spilled for you. Paul records in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, Jesus is saying, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We need to be reminded of the gospel. And so the Lord's Supper is a perfect venue for that. It calls us back to what's most important. You know, we, we, Christ doesn't have a tombstone because he's, there is no tomb. He rose again. And so we celebrate this as a, as a rem, in remembrance of what he has done. The third, it points upward. It points upward. We examine our hearts. We remember what Christ has done for us. Remember the penalty he paid that should have been ours? We should have, we should have accepted that, the penalty. And yet we hear the declaration that your sins are forgiven, that there is now no condemnation. And the response for that is to look upward in gratitude to God. You, you didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. And yet there it is. Forgiveness is available. And so we look upward we say, thank you, God, for the gift of your son. And then it, it points us forward to the future hope of another meal. Jesus said, I, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, 
this, this time when there'll be this messianic meal again that we celebrate with Jesus. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He looks forward. Life is not, is not perfect here. There are difficulties and there are struggles. And our Savior reminds us that he will one day return and make all things right and make all things new. And so the Lord's Supper brings us back to that hope. And so it's a perfect, wonderful reminder of reminding us of the, our glorious Savior and what he has done for us. Let's pray. God, in your grace, you have given us this table as a reminder because we know, Lord, that we are prone to forget. We are prone to doubt. Lord, so many things can pull us away from you, and, and so we thank you for this opportunity to once again to draw near to you, to remember our Savior, to think of our great redemption, greater than deliverance from Egypt, it's deliverance from our sins. And so, Lord, use this time. Speak to our hearts that we might glorify your good name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been instructed well today from the scriptures. So as we prepare our hearts for the table, please be reminded that the table at North Wake is open to anyone who is a disciple of Jesus, who's following him.